viewers I'm here um, I'm Matthew Crawford and I'm here today um, I put this together quickly because last week um, I was talking with uh, JJ Cooey and Charles Rixey uh, Liam and I were and and, uh, and JJ kind of dropped a thought bomb um, that I wanted to discuss more deeply and I'm gonna bring him in just a moment let him explain what that is but it, it has to do with um, you know genetic surveillance and uh, and big data and it's probably something that none of us have thought about enough but we're gonna explore it a little bit now today hey jj how are you i'm very good matt how are you doing well thanks yeah um and uh, i i guess i don't even really need to introduce you much because uh rounding the earth uh viewers uh, for the most part know who you are but anybody who who hasn't seen jj here with us or or viewed his channel at giga Ohm biological uh uh, JJ was JC on a bike early on during the pandemic and talking through um, the immediate evidence that was coming out of China about the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and, and how the official story didn't look all that great. And, and uh, thankfully, now we have a Jeffrey Sachs coming out and corroborating much of what you were telling the world back in, what, January of 2020? Yeah, I... I wonder, it's, I would say February would, where I would get my credit, but um, thinking about it in January for sure, but I put my neck out on the line in February. Um, I'm, I'm real skeptical to tell you the truth. I think you probably are too, that Jeffrey Sachs isn't somehow or another um, a controlled Mia culpa, if you will. and uh, Damage control? Damage control, perhaps. Uh, I'm not really sure, but he's a connected guy and, and it makes it, I, I think we need a huge grain of salt as we as we try to process what it means. Um, I think I've heard at least one person suggest that uh, as long as they just show Jeffrey Sachs to people like me and you, and he never reaches the view or anything like that, if you know that silly program, whenever that's on with the three or four ladies that talk about stuff, he's never going to be on that kind of morning program where he's going to spill these beans. And so as long as it feels to the dissonance that some progress has been made, maybe they can put out some of the fire um, on our side. I think it's some kind of operation like that, but I'm just, you know. That's an interesting thought. I, I have wondered about co-option of messaging several times during the pandemic. I think that that <clears throat> may be part of the story with, with uh, some of the information that's come out of Pfizer, uh, the FOIA documents. Um, that it feels like that information is manipulated as much as it is helpful. And um, if if Jeffrey Sachs doesn't wind up on everyone's news channel or or they can control when it happens. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's that's part of it. I mean, let's just do a thought exercise here. How long has Pfizer been releasing documents? If it was something that the that the PBS NewsHour thought that was in the best interest of the people that that control PBS NewsHour, then I think they would have a special report on the Pfizer document release every time it came out. But rather, um, they've never touched it. Not even one time have they even reported that there's a website where you can go and download these documents yourself and read about them. They have no reporter that's on this beat. And and quite frankly, who does? Does Fox News? I don't think they do either. Right. So that should tell you a lot. And that's the reason why you and I are making videos 
Exactly. And exactly. and the other people who are doing it, uh, Kevin McCarron, and he was talking about about this topic uh, last night. Um, did I say his name correctly? Yeah. You're friends with him, so okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and other people who are you know uh, more people are reaching into the realm of of uh, video discussion, and that needs to happen because we really just have no honest media at this point. Um, but let's move into today's topic because you dropped a real thought bomb on Tuesday. And it's one of those things where the moment you say it, I think it should have been more obvious to more of us, but perhaps with all the, the chaos of the plandemonium, um, which is the word that I've decided to use because I think it's so much bigger than, you know, a release of one virus or something like that. But <clears throat> with all the chaos going on, I think that it's hard to sometimes clear your mind, go for a walk, and to come up with these types of thoughts that perhaps would have occurred to us more quickly. And that tells us the strength of the propaganda forms and messages, the fire hose of information, the constant need to discuss whatever topic is being thrown out, whatever whatever interference has come up. Um, But you pointed out that we are living in a moment right now that is something like the, the greatest uh genetic diversity around the world that has ever existed and may ever exist which is partially a function of population right um and it may be that the population continues to grow some models have it peaking out around 10 billion as you pointed out give or take depending on whose model you're looking at uh, we have declining fertility rates in developed nations um and you know some of the causes of that may be more or less debatable, but in particular, um, we have greater genetic diversity in the United States, probably than anywhere that's ever existed. Right. And I think it's um, more, if you think about it from a genetic perspective, I guess, just to stay on exact topic, um, it's, it's the, it's the dependency that we don't understand of the interaction of genes. So I, my, what you see here, my phenotype being extremely thin and uh, my facial features and my hair and everything is a combination of a white guy from Wisconsin who met a half Filipino, half Indian girl in the Philippines while he was in the Navy. And so the combination of genetic enhancers and transcription factors and whatever that are regulating the expression of all the genes in my body, which have resulted in my physiology, my my phenotype, but my physiology. Why am I as healthy as I am? Why am I not fatter than I am? Why am I as, as smart in the ways that I am and not so smart in the ways that I am? All of this stuff is a result of nature and nurture, my genes and my experience. But this combination of a white guy from northern Wisconsin with with French and other heritage and a woman who happened to have a mom who was Filipino and a dad who was Indian, like that combination of genes may never come together again to reveal what this combination of genes and its resulting enhancer transposon transcription factor bouquet results in. And so I'm not suggesting that we have the technology to translate how my parents' genetics resulted in my exact physiology. But what I am saying is, is that the the opportunity to, one, collect data on my physiology, and two, have a correlative 
record of the DNA that produced that physiology, the only time you have a chance to record Jonathan Cooley is right now. And now if you expand that idea to the whole of the United States and think about the genetic diversity in people that's available right now and how many different combinations of genetic code and phenotypic physiology that you have, it's all a question of how well can you measure it? How well can you measure my physiology so that you can have this data for me and then also get it for you, for example, and then have two genomes and two physiological profiles. Now keep multiplying that across thousands and thousands and millions of people. And you can imagine how it is envisioned by the transhumanists and others that will be able to use AI to kind of surpass the random the random mutation rate as a way of improving or 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 um selecting against the background of genetic possibilities in the human race and there's at this stage in my in my opinion as a as a biologist there are few other ways that i can conceive that where you would have all of the possibilities lined up against or sorry all of the genetic sequences lined up against all of the best physiological characterizations that you can do and the better the physiological characterization is the more likely the ai will be able to find correlations and yeah this is ultimately this is a big data problem mm -hmm. and it's not all all that dissimilar from a lot of the big data problems that lead up to uh, ai in general a and million I games of go for example is just the same example right a, a billion games of go where it loses or it beats itself over and over and over again these are just multiple times the genetic game of life has been played in the context of the human genome and so the more data points you have the better chance the ai has something to figure out yeah and you know I, i'm going to go ahead and say this to any audience that's watching um there are different philosophies or beliefs in what artificial intelligence is and i'm going to go ahead and bypass as much of that conversation as possible by just saying um you know it, if it is possible to achieve something like human in, like human-ish intelligence. I, I personally think we're pretty far away from it. However, um, there is lots of automation. I think that that most of the the AI that's currently happening is, is really, you know, fancy terms for you know advanced automation, which turns into machine learning, which is more rapid, um, you know, more rapid optimization of the algorithms that we use. And one way or another, when you have big data. Uh, then you have, you know, easier opportunity to do that. And whoever controls those optimization processes has a lot of economic advantages. And, you know, when social media came out, a lot of the, the, you know, top computer science minds, you know, came out with warnings, you know, nobody listened much, but they said, look, you know, if you are, if you're not paying for the service, you're the product, right? And, and, you know, there are going to be people collecting this information on you and who knows how it will be used. We don't even know. We don't have that technology yet, but we will have it. And these big data people, they know that they know it's an information economy and they are, they're storing and preparing this information for future economic use, or at least they think they are. And, and it's unclear, you know, how useful some data will be, but at the very least, they can put an economic value on it uh, based on their idea of who's bidding for it, perhaps. And, you know, who are the world's biggest bidders? Right. I mean, pharmaceutical companies, I think, is one of the main ones. They already have a lot of data. Um, and 
This is also something that, for example, Biden's moonshot program, he, he said it like four times during his announcement of the cancer moonshot program, that patients want to share their data, but it's you companies, you you private, private corporations don't want to share the data. And it is really a question of who owns it. It's a question of who gets this as a resource. And I, I'd just like to clarify, you know, before anybody gets thinks that I'm too crazy. One of the ways that I spend my free time is trying to imagine the contents of the secret meetings that would have been able to convince patriots and people who have served the U.S. government for a lifetime as a career or whatever um, to make the choices that they've made that have helped us get to where we are and how we can sort of think about what they might think they know, which would keep them moving forward in the direction that they're moving without actually explicitly saying why we're doing this. And so for me, that's what's so troubling about somebody like Sam Harris, for example, is that it's hard for me to understand how he can't see the extreme contradiction that he's currently engaged in with regard to the vaccine and the and the virus and the way that he thinks about it. And and yet to see him apply it to 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 politics and to Biden and the laptop or whatever it was was extraordinary because then you really see that that any doctor could be in that trap. Any teacher or administrator or principal of a school, they're all potentially in that trap where somehow or another, if you met with the with the right school administrator at the beginning of 2020, where they had the private meeting about worst case scenarios, if you were shown these models of the worst case scenario in a private room at a government meeting, you would be motivated to do things to avoid the worst case scenario. But what strikes me as interesting from the, the larger perspective is that as we've talked about this more and more and thought about it, and I've read about it and thought about it more and more, it doesn't stop in 2020. I think there was a shift in the thinking about biology and biological terrorism and and whatever that happened quite quite many, many years earlier than 2020. And we are in a situation where a lot of these people have been being briefed about bioterrorism potential for many years before 2020. And in all of this, still to me, uh, thinking about the fact that it it doesn't still doesn't explain it, still doesn't explain it, still doesn't explain it. And then we got to population. And as soon as I started thinking about population, a couple things struck me as extremely important. The first one is, is that for the last two years of the pandemic, we've been talking about deaths from zero to a positive number, and all those deaths are a result of a virus. And we've never, ever, they've explicitly avoided explaining how many people die every year, what they die of, and why these people are an exception to that rule. And in fact, they've done everything to make sure that you never ask that question. And so then I started to think about looking up population pyramids because I had I'd done that and studied that a long, long time ago or read about it a long, long time ago and discovered that there's a pretty significant problem that we have and that a lot of financial people like probably yourself have started to or already understood a long time ago, which is that as 
our parents, and this is my best way of explaining it. My best way to explain it would be my parents' generation that you can just look at the salaries that they're making as they go into retirement. And those salaries are unimaginable to me and unimaginable to my uncle's kids, but they're making those salaries. Those teachers are retiring with those high salaries. Those engineers are retiring. Those financial people, the people that were working in business until they're 65 or 70 years old and they're part of the baby boomer generation retiring right now have giant salaries that are never going to be replicated by those coming up behind them in the next 20 years. And so all of these people that have been putting extra money into the financial system for 20 years are now in, in the largest numbers ever in the next three to five years are going to exit the financial system and stop putting in. And instead, they're going to start pulling out. And I think this shift from having all of this free money in retirement accounts that's coming in every year from all of these people in high positions changes then the way that the government is funded which which we understand is is quite a lot of smoke and mirrors is is going to come increasingly under pressure to change and i think that that led me to this realization that if the population people are correct and and that this these po these western populations are going to have a problem when they become top heavy in the old generation and financially insolvent and at the same time that they're not replacing the generation which means we are going to have a population sort of plateau and if you talk to these people that talk about cycles and 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 stuff like that and and can look farther into the way that population moves, most of them predict that after we peak, there's going to be a pretty big decrease in, in the population. And that means in my mind, we're always talking about we have too many people in the world and whatever, but then we're really in a place, like I said, and like we you just introduced with it, I said it too long probably, where this is the genetic diversity that will never exist again because if if the optimum population is 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 2 billion then right now is the last time that we're going to have this many copies of dna plus physiology dna plus physiology dna plus physiology and even better we could get dna plus physiology over time and and the more we could get, I can't emphasize that enough. The more physiology and physiological data that we can collect for every given genome that we have, the more likely it is that that data set will eventually be useful to a, a, a computer. And I liked what you said about that with regards to optimization, because I do think that a lot of times this is being confounded, and most people aren't aren't sophisticated enough to understand, for example, that when the AI of Google figured out how to become the best algorithmic Go player, they couldn't open the lid and then have a printout come out and now this is how you win at Go every time. Um, and I think that people still grossly overestimate what would happen if we had all that data and we fed it into an AI and it started to solve problems, it would probably still only be able to solve the problems that we have already solved in in a number of ways already for a very so, long time. 
if I can interject, I, I agree with you that that we are probably overestimating the value of, of certain data sets. Um, and and I, I have a discussion prepared um, that we can get to later on that. But I, I want to take a step back for a moment. Um, and, and you know, there's the discussion, like, are there too many people in the world? And, and I think that um, my personal answer is no. Um, my personal answer is um, that that's a function of economics. And, you know, I, I think the better question is, what is the current economic paradigm? And I'll make a, a parallel, you know, point, which is that Europe is in this terrible, horrific energy crisis right now. I mean, we are talking about the kind of energy crisis that may have ripple impacts throughout the world. I've always warned people, hey, you know, the worst thing about the pandemic might not be whether 15 million people die. It may be whether or not a billion people die because of uh, new poverty and starvation effects down the road. And I think that, that you know, we really are looking at that risk right in the face right now in several countries. But in Europe in particular, uh, we are seeing people pay energy prices that are literally two orders of magnitude more than I pay sitting here in central Texas. Right. I mean, that that is it's not sustainable. And in particular, there are price caps in some of these countries. There are price caps that keep, you know, um, some of the households and maybe even some of the large businesses, the small businesses, they have no price caps. Like literally, this is threatening the entire European economy of small businesses. And that that's catastrophe. Now, um, it, you know, making making that uh, parallel. Um, I think that um, we have underinvested in young people. We've overinvested in the baby boomer population that is retiring and that will begin, begin to take assets out of the market, as you pointed out. I think that we have overfocused on a small percent, maybe 5% of the young generation and, uh, and tried to encourage sort of um, a, a very sharp hierarchy to the economic elite elite uh, create students who are like ready to go, not just to these Ivy League schools and top technical colleges, but, you know, like where the average student now is is studying so hard and cramming so hard that they would have been like a, a top student there, you know, 50 years ago. But now they're just, you know, ordinary. Um, I hear this all the time, even from the professors, you know, even though professors like to to be cranky about, you know, their students who aren't working hard enough. But um uh, I talked to a, uh, an assistant professor at MIT a few years ago, Karan Kedlaya. I think he's at UCSD now. And he said uh, that MIT had revamped their entire math curriculum because the kids were coming in. So many of the kids were coming in already done with it, right? It's the math curriculum at one of the top universities in the world that tells you something about where the top students are, how much they, they've studied and worked. So I, I think, though, that we are not investing in enough of the, the younger generation. And it's because centralized powers, centralized authorities very often don't know how. And that's a big piece of the problem. They have this Malthusian mindset where they already imagine disaster. And I think that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They don't allow enough people to be participating in the solutions. They don't know how to relinquish control for other people to participate in the solutions. And so I'm going to point to something that you said about people want to share their data and make their data useful. I think that's that that's basically true. Now, many of us, especially in the United States, like me, I hide a lot of my data because I, I, don't, I want to be able to choose who uses it. Right. If you're if you want privacy, if you believe privacy is valuable, you defend that in some way. And the best way to defend it is not to relinquish your information to begin with. On the other hand, I'm perfectly happy if my health data, <laughs> I, I'm perfectly happy 
um, if my health data gets used to make other people healthier in some way in the future. People think about wearing their Fitbits and whatever's going to record that data. I think that uh, this is one of the reasons I love cryptocurrency is because that may be the way for people to have their data encrypted, have it not be traceable back to them, choose who they sell it to, whether it's micropayments or something bigger. And, and a, lot of, a lot of studies, even if they're retrospective, they can be as valuable as prospective studies statistically, where people, somebody can just you know, type in a query into an interface into the cryptocurrency system and everybody willing to sell their data for X or less sells it on the bid for that query. And that is a medical study. But right now we don't have that. What we have is, is that's pretty beautiful. I like that idea a lot. That's 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 beautiful. But right now we have these these big centralized uh, players, and and I think that that's a lot of the problem. Um, they they have you know one frame of mind. They have one set of beliefs about where this data is going or how valuable it is. There probably is just one or two bidders that, that matter when it comes to this. And you mentioned the pharmaceutical, but I'm going to say, you know, the biggest bidder might be the military industrial complex, which seems to be playing with the pharmaceutical industry. So it's kind of like a marriage there, but that's who really has the ability to be the biggest bidder because their, their budget has almost no limit. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, enough familiar with the workings of these agencies to understand. I often, I often perceive in my imagination that the Department of Defense will be antagonistic with the administrative side, the FDA and the CDC. But um, with regard to pharma, I don't know. Their their loyalties probably go wherever they can get money. Um, yeah, for me, it's. Uh, it's trying to figure out what's going on. And, and right now there is no question that the truth is not available on television and trying to figure out what motivates these people. It has to be more than just a bigger pile of money because that's, that, that, that game is being played off of television in my mind. Uh, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, even what money the pharmaceutical companies are making right now off of the pandemic is small compared to, the other kinds of shifts that are occurring behind the scenes with with state money and and military money and and investment and and shifting of currencies and that kind of thing i i think worrying about 50 billion dollars for a pharmaceutical company is is peanuts yeah um <clears throat> you know you, you just something that you said just sparked in my head, you know, um, what, what is their motivation? And a lot of people might just think, well, money, motivation, money, motivation. There's probably a point up the pyramid of thinking about money and investment going into the future where it is almost pure imagination, right? When people think into the future, they may or may not have the right idea. And uh, we spoke briefly the other day about Theranos. And, and this may be a great example to throw in here, which is, um, you know, Theranos really did have some important backers, you know, people who believed that um, uh, is Elizabeth Holmes, her name, that, yeah, have that, correct. Um, yeah. that, that, you know, something that she imagined as a college student, you know, and, and that she had professors who were like, you know, this is in the realm of whimsy more than science right now. But but because she could sell it emotionally in a convincing manner. Um, she wound up with enough people creating this sort of structure of group imagination that it created this snowball effect 
Um, and you know whether or not you might want to call it fraudulent or put a label on it like that, what it was was becoming part of the dominant imagination amongst the you know the VC. You know these are high level business thinkers, and 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 they talk to technologists, they talk to plenty of scientists because they want to know what's BS and what's not, right? But you know clearly they can be fooled, and that's not even the biggest level of fooling people. You know what we're talking about during the the pandemic. I mean, I think that there are several layers of fooling people, several that are that are deeper than, hey, one drop of blood and we can figure out what's going on with all your illnesses. Oh, absolutely, Matt. I mean, that at this stage in in my learning, I have no doubt in my mind that 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 much more of the healthcare industry is smoke and mirrors than any of us ever, ever dreamed before. Ooh, the pandemic ooh, can I throw this out? Sure. What if one drop of blood was one of the plans of connecting, of collecting all the genetic data? You you read you read my mind. I was going to say it right after I was done with the coffee. <laughs> wow, that's an interesting thought. Absolutely, man. Because it's also just an interesting thought from the perspective of if we fake it long enough, then we'll have enough data to make it work. Right. Right. And just to, just to be clear, um, I, I personally don't believe that that the emergence of different coronaviruses is something that that is faked. I think that there probably was a leaked virus, uh, it maybe multiple leaked viruses, possibly, um, but that it was played uh, differently than it was, that it probably would have been like a, a slightly bad flu season or something, uh, perhaps. Um, but that, uh, you know, testing was used to create illusions. And some of the illusions might have been, you know, hiding the fact that that maybe a lot of Americans had already had it. I think this, these viruses may have been around the world already before 2020. Um, I really saw your post today and I really enjoyed the fact that people were searching SARS um, in 2018. It's an excellent yeah, point. In 2017, there, there were more people here. in Wuhan uh, Googling SARS in 2017 than there were in 2019 when we know that there were two riots and hospitals filling up. So um, that that says something. <laughs> um, or we're told the hospitals were filling up. You know, I, I don't even know how far that illusion goes. But uh, the, the testing, you know, when, when we look at the testing data, and we know that PCR is iffy. It's iffy according to several factors. Everything has sensitivity and specificity that causes a level of false positives. And of course, if you have no one who has a condition, then it's 100% false positives. And this is one of those things that always gets lost in the debate. Like, start from the basics. You know, no matter how good your tests are, you could go from almost 0% false positives all the way to 100% between seasons for something like a, a viral illness. And, um, and, you know, we can see testing amounts being manipulated at different times in a way that, that looks consistent with, uh, you know, generating levels of, of fear that may not, you know, really be accurate. But um, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, change to the general if that's okay with you because we have kind of connected this topic with the generality of big data, right? And uh, and talking about imagination and how it is that people at the very top might be thinking about this. And uh, I'm gonna bring up the topic of futurism. I don't know how familiar you are with the futurist community. Not ter not terribly familiar, but I mean I'm aware. Uh, I just don't really read about them very much. 
I, I looked up when I lived in San Diego, I had a friend who was very active, like um, hosting uh, futurist salons. Um, actually, interestingly, I think it was started by one woman who knew who wound up, um, I, I think, uh, collaborating with Elizabeth Holmes. Um, I, I'm not going to mention who she is. She has a big lawsuit going on right now. But um, but then uh, another friend of mine took it over and, and he and his wife uh, ran it for several years. They would bring in uh, a lot of future speakers. A lot of them were science fiction authors like Werner Vinge. Um, we would hear, um, you know, people like uh, uh the seasteading people, you know, Pottery Friedman, um, but, you know, all kinds of projects that were like, hey, the future could be changed by X. And some of these people had good ideas. Some of them were bleeding edge. Some of them uh, struck me as purely imaginary, to be honest. But I, I think that what happens is this community becomes sort of a culture that can become a bit of a mind virus, kind of like the Malthusian mind virus, but it has some internal contradictions. And I'm going to share a screen now here. And uh, I didn't even know this until uh, fairly recently that futurism actually just start, started out as an art and culture movement. You know, early in 20th century Italy, um, and, and perhaps this is part of the you know, change in imagination that allowed um, Mussolini to be moving forward and gaining momentum with fascism. Uh, because fascism was something where the culture of it, um, the ideas behind it, changed very rapidly. You know, from, uh, you know, right around World War II, Mussolini was kicked out of the socialists. You know, he was a socialist. They kicked him out because he wanted to use state power to go up against the UK. And the socialists were like, wait, you know, you're, you're pulling up the sword that we're trying to say is a bad thing. Um, but, uh, you know, so the, there were three fascist parties and they gradually moved from left to fascist or, or however you might want to think about that. I don't even want to use the labels of the wings, but, you know, they got gradually worse as it went. But futurism was part of the cultural dynamic there. And it led to, uh, you know, the Russians got involved. There was Russian futurism, American futurism. Um, but uh, one of the, where, you know, part of where this led eventually was um, the singularity. So do you know this concept of the singularity? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, and uh, you know this exponential curve is just going to kind of run away to the point that we can't even think about it fast enough while it happens. And you know, part of part of what the futurists have decided, and I think I think this is where things get blurry. It, it, we're we're talking about um, knowledge that we don't necessarily have, which is that the growth of technology depends on the human intellect changing in some sort of dynamical way. Um, whereas I think, look, you know, all, all that has to be true for the exponential curve is for each dollar to have a place to be invested because, you know, it, the futurists never stop to talk about the economic side of this, but really what we're looking at is an economic growth curve, right? Every dollar generates, you know, uh, one plus the interest rate dollars, depending on how, you know, uh, you know, what there is to invest in. And economically, we've seen this over time. We've seen, um, you know, I'll, I'll point to uh, Carl Sagan's cosmic calendar where, you know, the universe is created and I, I'm not going to get into controversy over the Big Bang Theory. Who cares? Uh, but the point is that as time goes forward, there's more and more that's happening more quickly. And the stuff that we think about, you know, life in, in the galaxy and on, on Earth doesn't even start to happen much until, you know, mid-December of the cosmic calendar. You know, most of the time of the cosmos has already gone by by then. Um and, and perhaps you could think of this as like exponential increase in interesting things happening. And then one, once life is on Earth and it begins to, um, 
you know, turn into other forms of life to, uh, to, to advance into greater and greater cellular structures and plants and animals and insects and, and dinosaurs and mammals. And then finally, on December 31st, right, the entire year, if we're, if we're describing the universe in a year, has gone by. And then on December 31st, at 10.15 in the morning, apes appear. And, and then it's not until 9.24 in the evening that the first human ancestors begin to walk up right. And, and this is probably not exact, right? Like, who cares if it's exact? It, you know, it, it's an analogy to make the point. You know, 10.48, Homo erectus appears. 11.54, anatomically modern humans appear. 11.59 and 45 seconds, invention of writing. 10 seconds before midnight, the pyramids. One second before midnight, Columbus makes it to the Americas or to the uh, the West Indies or wherever you want to say he got. Um, and, you know, the calendar, I, I feel like somebody, I, I wish I had time to do this. I, maybe I will someday, is, is rearrange this to make it look more of an exponential thing. Some of the calendars look better than others, but... Um, you know, uh, some people put things on a logarithmic scale. And if you log normalize an exponential curve, it is just a line. And so that's another way to look at it. But I think that what happens is the singularity begins to capture people's imaginations. And if, if what we're talking about is big data serving people who are just trying to use their imaginations, that means that we're talking about speculation. We're talking about you know, pure speculation driving policy that changes the whole world. And I haven't seen this movie yet, but apparently there's a John Cusack singularity movie. Um, but now I'm, I'm just going to point out the economics for people who haven't seen this before. And remember, there's a difference in time scale over here on the left, but this is world GDP. You can see this is clearly an exponential looking curve. And uh, if anybody ever wants to look this up, uh, the Chilean miracle where they had that bump in the road in the early 70s. Alinde came in, um, said, hey, we can run a command economy through this computer room. In the early 1970s, he, he, he really sold that idea. It was total pseudoscience. Uh, looked like the, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Literally, they just had this like stage gussied up and told people they were running the economy that way. And then it, of course, collapsed. But when it got back on track, it moved. It was kind of like having an exponential curve with a dip. It got right back on track the moment, you know, market economy was was back there again. Um, you know, world GDP growth, people fit these to exponential curves. Um, and, you know, it may be the case that uh, interest rate changes over time or that even monetary policy changes over time. I think that that's one thing that people don't necessarily know how to, you know, fit into these curves the way that's going on. So, um, but that's, that's it. I, I kind of prepared, you know, a few... Uh, few pictures to to jump into this conversation about um, the technocracy, you know, if you want to call it that, um, futurism, singularity, and it's really just, you know, a, a bunch of powerful people. They speculate. Now, and I think what happens below them is, is there are the mandarins who serve the people who have all the, the capital. These are the most educated people on earth. They, they are, you know, at the bleeding edge of technology. And I think very often they overrepresent their hands because you do not succeed at the highest levels without overrepresenting your hands. That's, that, that may be, that, that's a, a form of narcissism that's built into the system that we are not talking about enough 
you know, whether or not people go, oh, modern society is narcissistic, American culture is narcissistic, but really, you know, right there at this level of leadership between the educated class and the capital class, right there, right there, there is the worst information exchange in the world. And I see it every time I've ever been in a room with VCs, I see it. I see that they are prepared for something that is totally unrealistic. You know, what's your pitch? And I always think, wait, why aren't you asking me how can I educate you about right. what I do? Like, if you're really interested, you know, um, let, let, let's talk for a few minutes here. But if you're really interested, what's going to happen is we're going to have lunch. We're going to have further conversations. I'm going to teach you about the technology that I'm pitching. But that's not the way that it really happens. Right. And, you know, and, and if you're just rebuilding an old business, you don't need that. You know, you, you know, standard pitch deck is fine. But when it comes to, you know, bleeding edge technology or how the world's going to be changing according to technology, um, I, I think the, the conversations are designed wrong. The educational system is designed wrong. And we assume that it's all going to be heavy lifting by a few very brilliant people when the truth is we need to, you know, crowdsource a lot of the solutions, uh, better education at the bottom tier, everybody, you know, make a better society, make a better culture. So I, I'm ranting a little bit here. But, no, but uh, I really, I want to piggyback on it for five more minutes because I really think it's an important point to make that you're, you're making now. We are in a place where they would like us to believe we have little control over the near future to come and that we are a very insignificant player in the grand scheme of things because this is an unavoidable event eventually you're going to be controlled by these machines and it's not far away and you might as well just you know release yourself and float in the stream um go with the flow whatever and i think that's part of this theranos illusion we have a choice right now to decentralize our societies in a way that preserves our cultural diversity it preserves our our nations as as individual sovereignties and it preserves our our families as sovereign groups that that matter and i think i think understanding how much of this is potentially as you said and i've said you know groups having meetings in private you know the there's first a conference and then there's a meeting after the conference and the meeting after the conference is where everybody tells the real truth and those people have been meeting together for many, many years, moving up the, the, the hierarchy in these various organizations. And they are now in control of where we are. And they are all collectively either part of whatever the vision is going forward. And that's, again, where this genetic idea came from. What stories could they have told? What Theranos-like promises could they have made to these people behind the scenes to make them behave the way they're behaving? I think that's really where i'm going with it yeah there are a lot of people who who you know of course anything that that is not mainstream they, they want to um throw out the label conspiracy theory um but i just want to point out that that part of what i was talking about with like chile for instance that was an actual futurist conspiracy you had a government that that had a fake economic control room and uh and and they brought in somebody who was kind of like you know, the um, the Ray Kurzweil of his time, 
And uh, I know a lot of people will hotly debate Ray Kurzweil with me, but I, I think he's constantly, you know, um, overselling what the immediate future is is going to be on every level, um, and that he's missed a lot of his uh, his you know landmarks uh, over time. But but there was somebody uh, fifty year I can't remember his name, but um, Alinde brought him in somebody uh, from Europe, and that person was the person who said, "Yeah, I can build this computer system that will run the whole economy." And of course, it was total nonsense. You know, um, maybe this is like the uh, Imperial College model, perhaps, um, you know, just total nonsense. But they stood back and said, voila, we have, you know, the future that will control our socialist economic, you know, system and experiment. And within a year and a half, you had hyperinflation and, and just destroyed industry. Um, it was just total chaos. Oh, and look at what's happening now. We're two and a half years into a pandemic and we have, you know, uh, European power rates that are simply unsustainable that will be, you know, we could have farming collapse. We could have business collapse. Like, you know, we're talking insane nightmares, but <clears throat> I, I guess anytime I talk about something that bad, um, I do want to point out once again, once Chile got over the hump, once Chile restored, um, you know, markets and, and, you know, I'm not going to defend Pinochet, or, or some of the things that he did, you know, maybe some of the things that he did were necessary. People argue that some of the things that he did were horrific, whatever, you know, maybe it's a war, maybe you think, think of it that way. But once the market was functioning again, uh, their economy did return to the trajectory that it was on. And hopefully that can happen for Europe. Hopefully that can happen for Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. And you know what? The several dozen other nations that are going to go down that hole real soon, given what we did with lockdowns and, you know, changing the world economy. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what we'll look at, what the world will look like in the spring, um, because there's lots of people warning about, about the, a huge shift that's going to occur in, in Europe and in Africa over the next year. And so if that comes to fruition, um, there are a lot of places in Europe right now where the migration rate is starting to sort of reach a tipping point with the people um i can just tell you anecdotally i heard from my family was in the netherlands for a month and one of a, a very large frustration that's occurring right now in the netherlands is that um dutch people who need public housing cannot get it um because essentially all public housing is being prioritized for new immigration and so there are homeless people in the Netherlands and there are people that are suffering in the Netherlands and they're all descended from people who are descended from people who are Dutch. And it's it's starting to become a problem because uh, they are giving away money so freely, um, but only in a certain manner. And it's, you know, that coupled with the way that they're really bifurcating i keep using this word but they are doing it in the netherlands really well my entire family thinks that the farmers are nuts in the netherlands i mean my dutch family all my 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 in-laws think that the farmers are kind of being crazy over there and so it's it's very hard to get a bead on what's really happening um because their media is so trusted and so tuned into uh, skilled TV watching in the Netherlands is at a new le is is a is a different level than it is in America, where they in the Netherlands they tend to believe. I don't know if it's true or maybe there's more skill in the presentation, but there's less 
contradiction between channels there. And so they tend to trust it more. Uh, the, the party line is trusted there more. And so when they're what a useful concept, I love that phrase that you invented. Did you, you invented that skilled TV watchers? Yeah, I did. I think that, so. That, that deserves its own documentary. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's really one of the best phrases to point out or to help people understand the narcissism that is built into our educational system. Uh, because when you put kids in a box all day, you know, we designed our schools like prisons. Um, we used the Prussian, you know, education method, which was really, you know, really was designed to brainwash people. It was designed to create uh, Frederick the Great, um, uh, the, the best possible army, meaning people who would just look and take signals and orders. And, and all they were learning to do was, was watch one person, tell them, you know, what to do, who they were all day long, you know, dehumanize them. Um, you know, the skilled TV watcher is the dehumanized educated, you know, educated person who doesn't realize that they're dehumanized. And, you know, that, that requires a level of narcissism because those are the people who are, who become, um, uh, what's, what's the phrase, um, uh, you know, they're, they're incapable of thinking about the fact that they can participate in a solution, you know, not, not willful ignorance. What, what's the, the phrase? Um, I don't know. They become kind of apathetic. Learn, yeah. uh, uh, I know what you're saying now. I get it. Um, it's not learned incompetence, but it's something no, like that. No, it's like submissiveness. It's, it's really, yeah. It learned, yeah. uh, what is the right word? I know what you're talking about, but yeah, it's, that's frustrating that I didn't, that it doesn't come to my mind. Yeah. Maybe learned obsolescence. That's not the phrase we're looking for, but, um, yeah, these are people who, who become, um, you know, what these might be are actually the, the, the people who were trained to be mandarins, but didn't win the lottery in the mandarin pool, either weren't good enough for major league selection or, uh, or just, you know, by not knowing the right people didn't get promoted. Um, and they, but they become their feeling of importance comes through skilled TV watching in particular. And these make up, you know, you know, maybe like education wise, your, your 40th percentile through your 95th percentile. And that's, that's the majority of a country, you know, and these are, these are people who allowed their intuition to be trained away by, you know, looking, looking to that one person in the front of a room to tell them how to think and what to do. Yep. I think um, the, the thing that surprises me is how many people are still watching television thinking that they, there's a, there's a job to be done there, or there's, if you have the right filter, you can still get stuff useful from it. Um, that's the part that really shocks me the most. Uh, because when I watch television now, I watch it very specifically with the idea of trying to discern the the cleverness in their message because it's only that now that i see and pbs news hour is one of the most egregious i mean every sentence every word choice is is real that's there's nothing improvised in that entire presentation nothing is is by chance and um you can see it because if they need to they just edit and so you can see hard cuts sometimes that aren't supposed to be there, but you, they do it because they didn't get the language that they wanted out of the first cut. And they will do that, and they do it, and it is convincing you 
again, what we said earlier, I think it's convincing you that you'd have a very small role to play in the future of your community and the future of your state and the future of your nation. And, and it's just a ball way too big for you to think you can contribute to its motion. And so it's, we need to, we need to arm people with that. We need to real make people realize again, that if they take responsibility for knowing that there's, there's a freedom to be gained in that. And I think that's, that's really something. I had muted myself. One of the things that that, um, that you just pointed out to me or, or made me think about was uh, the soundbite wars, the information wars that we think of politicians as ordinarily playing have seeped into science on a level that we that we haven't fully comprehended. And what you just said about you have people talk, you bring people on, doctors, scientists, you have different people talk, but then you get to select the 30 seconds that you want to show people. So when you find a person phrasing it the right way, that is part of what is most convincing to the skilled TV watchers, right? They, they, they don't understand how to go a level deeper. And it seems to them like they're listening to, um, you know, to their smartest professors over and over and over again. They think of the same experience. and That's part of the indoctrination. But, you know, um, somebody asked, is it true that farmers are being pushed out? Is that a question uh, that we can answer here? Yeah, in the Netherlands they are, but it's a very specific a very very specific way that they're being pushed out as far as I understand it because the pressure is not technically coming from the the government the pressure is coming from the large distributors of dairy for example those distributors are being pressured by the government to impose these ESG restrictions on their suppliers and so the government is indirectly negotiating with these big big organizations. I don't even know if uh, I wouldn't know off the top of my head who they are, but you can imagine something like Kemp's or something like um, Whole Foods, for example, would have very big influence on the places that it gets its milk from. And so the government, like they do in America, is, is and it might even be through the shareholders are pushing on these companies to conform with the ESG standards of the EU. It's not, it's not actually, it's very much more uh, being done in a subtle way so that the politicians can still go like, well, it's not really us, it's the EU. And it's the, we all agreed to this. And so nobody's really to blame, but but the farmers know who's to blame. They know that it's a cooperative effort between these various levels of of distribution and regulation. That's about the best I can say it. Yeah, you know, I saw a video just the other day of um, I, what I think was an Amish farmer in the U.S. who's being fined like $300,000. <clears> it just seems totally crazy. They, um, you know, his farm has been operated very well with uh, what looks like pretty good, uh, you know, land maintenance usage, like what you might think of as, you know, not even regenerative farming, but just, you know, something that, that doesn't degrade because you have you know, uh, some cows on the land producing manure, you know, you have um, grazing, but not overgrazing, and, um, and and you've disappeared uh, into space. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> and, and but, yeah, the government, I, I can't remember what it was. Oh, I think that, that the farm was selling directly to people in the area. And the government is coming in and trying to basically shut them down using fines. <clears throat> this is tyranny 
it's very hard to call it anything else. Um, this is a point at which you, you, you know, they may be able to start forcing people to sell farms, individuals, in order for corporations to pick them up. And if, if corporations are allowed to use government in that way, then what you have is an economic system in which everyone else will own nothing. Because the only times when the corporations will buy that land is when it's undervalued, right? When different things go up and down in the market, they will choose when the market's down in order to make their buys, or they may even push the market in different directions at times uh, in order to hurt people. I'm not even certain that um, that wasn't the plan with the housing market in the US in 2020, when that just skyrocketed and people were buying houses for you know literally 80% more than you know the same houses were selling a year before. I saw some houses that were literally listed triple what they've been bought, you know, bought for in like 2018. Um, you know, when, when the markets can be moved around that way and when you can get government to go and police people in that way, then we have a really scary situation in the world. You want to hear a little anecdotal story about that? I'm in Pittsburgh. I had to move house. We, we couldn't buy the house that we were in. We, I kind of wanted to, my wife kind of didn't. Um, but anyway, we were renting, but we were renting to own at the time, but it didn't work out. Um, the the family that owned the house that we were renting um had offered it to us a year before for 275 so 275,000 and then last year in april it sold for 340 on bidding um and the point being is that then we had to move and while we were moving in april using zillow to find a rental house I would say somewhere between 45 and 55% of the houses, right around half, are already owned by a corporate multi-house owning management company. And in our case, um, the company that we are owned by is a company based in Florida, and it has a management office in Maryland, and they have houses in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, I mean, all around the United States. I think they have 32 houses in Pittsburgh and then they, I pay my rent to Florida. I call Maryland if I need a plumber and then the plumber is locally sourced. And before we had, we had fully moved in, the owner of the house was one LLC. And because we looked it up on the internet, we could see that that LLC had just bought the house from another LLC six months before. And then that LLC sold it to a third LLC and didn't pay their gas. So our gas was cut off the second day we moved into the house. And that had to be rearranged by the management company in Maryland, talking to the two LLCs that had sold the house to each other and who owed the gas money. And then the gas got turned on a few days later. And the whole thing is being run by, you know, 25 year old people in various places that answer the phone and you can hear kids in the background. And so it's a really, really, really shady rental market because in one year, three different LLCs bought this house and every time the house went up in value, how does that work? And and what what's happening in all of these other houses and how could this possibly benefit these local places, you know, where, you know, I'm trying to buy a house, but I'm never going to be able to buy a house in Pittsburgh anymore because a lot of these houses that are that should be bought by me and then I would invest in them and fix them up 
are being bought by uh, a, a weaponized pile of money who fixes them up in theory, because that's something that also you can see in this house. I'll give you an example. Uh, instead of redoing all of the bathrooms in this house, they put two coats of white paint over everything. So it looks like the tile and the tubs were all done. But by the time the kids have used the tub like three times, the paint is coming off of the bottom in big flakes. And now you can see that the whole place was just kind of sterilized with new carpet and whatever to make it look good. And I think that was part of the scam, right? Because you can reappraise the house after you do that. And then you can sell it and then you can reappraise it again or whatever. And each one of these times they did something that allowed them to take value out of the house. And now they're right. If you can play a game where you can manipulate the value of the house by five or 10%, then what you want is a market in which it exchanges hands as often as possible so that you game the system as often as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. I think mean, they um, borrowed against it twice or something, you know, Yeah, and this is a piece. Um, this, this is going to affect Europe. I think uh, during this economic crisis, um, I'm going to mention, um, <clears throat> there is there is something called the mortgage uh, electronic registry system. Yeah, you, know, you, you talked about how hard it was to find out like who owned the house in order yeah. to get like you know gas turned on. Um, in Italy, a lot of people, farmers, don't even know who their landlord actually is anymore. This is becoming more and more common around the world, and it's happening uh, in an insidious way. There is uh, MERS, the mortgage electronic registry system. Um, is, is a place where, you know, people don't know that it exists. They don't know that's where they would go access, uh, you know, and, and it's not all land, it's some land. Ordinarily, you would go to the county office and find out who owns the deed, you know, to a property, right? But that's no longer the case. It's no longer the case that it's guaranteed that you can go to, to the county and find out who owns a property. This is going to become a problem very quickly if we don't unwind this. But, um, you know, we're, we, we've kind of gotten off topic, but all these things are connected. It's connected to the way society is evolving very quickly. And, you know, that we see these problems, um, you know, coming to a head now is a sign that we need to do a lot of soul searching and reevaluating of the power structures that we have. Because, you know, who knows what we're going to see in terms of, you know, power costs, farms going under, entire nations starving. You know, we, you know, will we see a billion people die before all of this is done during this crisis? You know, who knows? Um, well, I think the, the thing I would add to this is that everybody needs to start doing their part. I'm a biologist. I'll do the biology. Someone else has got to do this finance stuff and this global economy stuff and this, you know, behind the scenes weaponized piles of money stuff. There are plenty of smart people like yourself that are still kind of sitting on their hands and not really doing anything. And every single person that can start dancing needs to start dancing so that it becomes obvious that something's wrong. That, uh, that is actually my entire goal with stepping away from doing the work that I would normally be doing is to is to create enough noise that enough people get off their hands and say, oh, you know, uh, I need to do something in sort of a parallel world. I, you know. Um, th there's the game B conversation. And uh, you and I have had a little bit of that conversation with Brett Weinstein. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, yeah, the game B conversation needs to be turning into something real right about now. And there are some people who are doing that. I'm actually going to have uh, a couple of guys on, um, I think next week, um, who, who do like active 
you know, community settlements who, who teach people how to do it. And they have uh, like 40,000 people in their network. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, people need to start thinking in terms of building businesses that that are built under the assumption that the old regime simply is flailing in its ability to understand what would be good to move forward with. Um, and, and, you know, people talk about the psychopaths at the top, whether or not all those people at the top are psychopaths, when you have that much disconnection at that level between the mandarins and the capital providers and the people, you know, it, it, in each layer, you have this incentive to, you know, cut out anything that's good and just get to the top, you know, now, game theoretically, it's a race to the bottom, you know, you set a minimum standard, and the people who succeed are the people who are just at that standard, but no higher, who expend no more energy going above and beyond that. Um, they don't even see in their plans the people who are getting hurt until there's a momentous event or people force them to. We have a momentous event taking place in Europe. And as much distraction as Ukraine is, and I'm not you know, dismissing the pain of that situation, though it's not clear to me exactly all the actors who are all the causes of that situation, but the pain in Europe is just enormous, and it's going to be enormous throughout Asia as well. I have heard that there um, that Sri Lanka is the only that there are a lot of localities that are in chaos in different places in like Southeast Asia in in uh, Malaysia, for instance, that we're not being told much about. Um, you know, the news is just you know totally untrustworthy at this point. Uh, Bangladesh looks uh, looks like it's starting to get pretty bad. We have no idea what's going on in China. You know, they used to have riots all the time, but they became such a uh, an organized police state that we stopped seeing as much. But we don't even know how much of it just it, it just doesn't get out. We just don't find out about it or we just see, you know, one video clip for 30 seconds. And we don't even know what year that was from, much less what city. Right. Have you um, heard about this new movement? Um, it started with uh, live flat in Chinese, but now it's like uh, let it die and bin lie bin. It's a movement among the young in China to to just not really work anymore. <clears throat> kind of the minimum amount um, or put it off until tomorrow because it doesn't matter anyway. And uh, it's starting to become actually a frame. I heard it's starting to become a little bit of a problem over there. I, I have a feeling that in just the same way that when my wife was over in the Netherlands, there was virtually no real news about what's going on in America and what was going on in America was fine. Um, we get no news that's really relevant for the Netherlands or for Canada and China, for example, is very cleansed, whatever story we get. I think we can assume that, as you said, the news is is very much just a series of, of productive myth or produced mythologies at this point none of it is is real i mean i mean i know there are people in those places and and those those images are real but but what these people are doing behind the scenes what people are how people are suffering how they they are having as hard a time sustaining the narrative in china as they are here you can force people to take the test it doesn't mean they believe it that's why they that's why they behave the way that they do, I think. And so they're forcing their people to go through the motions, but I don't think they believe it any more than the average person in America believes it. I mean, the common sense is starting to take over in most of the free-thinking adults. It's a question of, man, they, they can't turn off the internet 
and they can't turn off the television or this whole thing would fall apart in a week um because we'd all start talking to each other and 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 that's the thing that i think is happening more and more and you're doing it and the more people we can get to do it the better and just to keep talking and keep exploring the the possibilities that these people are not uh everything that they say they are well, this has been an interesting thread i'm gonna um start to wrap things up here uh though you know uh, i'll give you a chance to to close out any thoughts that you you've got we started the hour we started uh, a little over an hour ago this conversation with a big data conversation which is that um and and I and you know people are going to call this you know conspiracy theory. I, I think I'd prefer to call it speculation. But the moment I heard it, this became my default speculation because of what we've seen in big data. Right? When you think about the value of the data that is in uh, you know human genomes, when you think about the the point that you are right, you know this is. This is the moment of uh, greatest genetic diversity, especially in the U.S., but around the world. In the U.S., you know, it, we live in a society where a quarter of marriages that occur in the U.S. right now, a full 25 percent are interracial marriages. <laughs> you know, it, it, um, I, I know that there's a, there's the woke conversation about how racist um, the power structures are. And I'm sure that there are, you know, th th well, and, and there certainly are plenty of points of pain that are left, especially in certain locations, especially in the ghetto, especially amongst, um, you know, uh, certain pockets of immigrants. Um, there, there's still a lot of pain, but in general, um, this is a society that is that just mixes left and right. Right? We, we have, you know, a unique genetic profile in history. It is very valuable. There's no doubt that it, even if, even if that weren't true, all the genetic data in the world would still be highly valuable. But this is the moment when it's most valuable. And if if the population is going to contract now, if if they are withdrawing some of the supply lines for the food production, uh, reappropriating some of that land, then all of those things would have to happen at once. This is part of the reason I don't use the term pandemic. I use the term pandemonium. Um, you know, this is just pandemonium. We have so many interests going together. Uh, whether or not the dollar survives whether or not the militaries uh, maintain the same budget or, or the same power that they had, or, you know, the <clears throat> Silicon Valley who creates a lot of the technology for them. There are a lot of industries being reshaped and changed very, very rapidly. And energy policy, what the needs are going to be. Are we going to use, you know, smaller, cheaper, safer um, uh, nuclear energy? I know thorium, it, it, it's not a great conversation because we have all kinds of problems with waste from the past, but, um, but you know, the plants are much better. We, we do need to manage them well still. Um, you know, it, so much rapid changes, but one of the big antis is this genetic data. I think, I think you were spot on to bring that into the conversation and, uh, and you know, I, this should probably drive, uh, you know, I don't know where this is going to go, but this ball is in play now. So there it is. There it is. I think, um, yeah, the, for me, just to wrap it up is is to put it into the context of trying to to find motive. For me now, it isn't it can no longer where we are can no longer be explained by incompetence. We're talking about a, a carefully orchestrated uh, 
consequential choices were made repeatedly which have brought us here and they are not altering their course and so i've felt forced to try and put myself in their mindset of maybe we have we we need to be rulers of the earth maybe we need to make sure that this is a population plateau and while we're making sure that this is a population plateau and avoiding total global chaos we should take advantage of this and how could we improve our ability to rule this large population how could we improve our ability to control them and then finally when we finally have reduced population to the level that we feel is the appropriate level um, will we have taken advantage of this moment where the human capital the human the human biological data that's available now we can't just let it go um and and i think that would have been part of the compelling set of arguments that would have been used over the course of the years preceding the pandemic to get a lot of these as you refer to them mandarins on board of the idea that we need to be above national governments and we need to institute these new ways of managing our populations um, because the coming times are going to require it and if we don't then other cultures and other countries that are already instituting these levels of control are going to just surpass us so quickly um, that, that we will lose and so if we want to even hope to maintain some on par dominance in the world as the united states or as a western culture um then we need to to get on board with this. And I think that's the sales pitch. That's what hit me in my head that that would have been the sales pitch in these dark meetings for many. It, it is the sales pitch too, and there's this dichotomy there. You know, when you talk about the nation, are you talking about the government or the people? And this is this moment where that divide, the difference between the two, becomes more clear because um, they are in conflict, in extreme conflict. I think in a lot of places. Well, Jonathan, uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure uh, and it's always educational uh, to talk with you. And I'm glad to have, you know, another person to to talk through some of these ideas with. But you've brought uh, a, a big piece of the puzzle. So thanks so much. No problem. Thanks, man, for having me. I always enjoy talking to you. All right. Well, I'm going to so I, I'm still practicing this live streaming thing. Let's see if I do this right. <laughs>